Hello, this is Kevin. Welcome back to the Messy City podcast. Have a very special guest here today, uh, somebody that I've ad admired uh, for a long time. And uh, I'm absolutely delighted to have him here, David Sucher, with us from Seattle, Washington. Welcome, David. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Well, uh, it's it's a great pleasure of mine. You probably don't know this, but uh, back in the day, so David David uh, became probably more well known for his uh, fantastic book called City Comforts, which is uh, almost 30 years old. But you probably don't know that uh, for a number of years, I used to teach an urban design program, and and I always had uh, one of your books was required reading for uh, for the students. Uh, I just I, I I always felt like it was one of the seminal books to really uh, explain the art of uh, making cities well and urban design and and so I'm really excited to talk with you about it and talk about what you've been up to in recent years. Thank you very much. It's very flattering. I really appreciate that. Honestly, I do. It's uh, well. Let's talk a little bit about city comforts. It it, sure. it is it it has been almost thirty years, which probably is hard to believe. It's amazing. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, uh, and when you, let's talk about when you initially thought about writing that book, like what kind of, what drove you to, uh, put that together and, and put that out uh, in the world? Cause this was 1995, I believe. Yeah, it was, and I, the book of course took two or three years. I think the Genesis was, I was on a, uh, advisory committee. I mean, it really, it was, is really pretty simple. I was on a, uh, citizens advisory committee. No, come to think of it, I was actually ex officio, I think is the term. I was on the city, the city planning commission, and we had a citizens advisory committee to establish design review for um, the basically the multifamily neighborhoods in, in the city, the, the neighborhood commercial. And I've noticed something very interesting that in the uh, beginning of the meetings or at the end or sort of in the just kind of chat, there was no discussion of actual buildings or situations or environments. People, you know, you'd think, remember these, these there were, the, the, the committee was made of architects and developers and activists and the activists, many of whom were also practically speaking, they were architects or the planners or, or at least very knowledgeable. So you'd think there would be people talking about, oh, did you see so-and-so's project? You know, it's terrible, or it's wonderful, you know, and, and here's, here's why, or here's in, in one way or the other. There, was, there wasn't that kind of conversation, and there wasn't that kind of conversation during the actual substantive meetings. We focused on uh, how far away the notice signs should be. Should they be <laughs> four feet by eight feet, or should they be five feet by seven feet, or whatever? And I thought, well, that stuff's important. Process is, is critically important. Disclosure and, and process are, are crucial. In, but... I found it fascinating that there was very little discussion of, uh, you know, that building would be great, except why did they have reflective glass? Like that, in <laughs> fact, that's one of the, the buildings in, in, in my book. There's a little um, uh, fast food place, which otherwise is not bad. You know, it's, it's considering it was built in the 80s. It's, it's a freestanding building with parking surrounding it, but but the building is actually attractive. They, they did make some real efforts in terms of the the basic architecture, and it comes right up to the sidewalk and has lots of windows, but it's reflective glass, you know, and so it sort of spoils the you know to my point of view, it, it spoils the uh, 
the uh, it limits the uh, you know, obviously it limits the interaction between inside and outside, but yeah. that kind of those kinds of subject things weren't brought up in the conversations, and so I started looking around, and I I don't know I sort of I started as a hobby. I started you know I was taking pictures of things, and I just somehow I got, I don't remember exactly. I got this bee in my bonnet that I should be explaining you know that. That's what makes an interesting city, all these little, this accumulation of details. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a part of a larger uh, frustration on my part that, that most of us, I think, we don't see. We have very little, little um, uh, kind of, um, people don't see the physical environment, most people, I'm talking about in general. And we certainly don't seem to talk about it very much. It's gotten better, I have to say. It's certainly gotten a whole lot better over the last 30 years. And I, I'm, I've been um, sort of toying with the idea of doing a third edition, another, yet another revised edition. So I've, I've started testing that to see, is there enough interesting stuff out there that I've never seen or sort of variations on a theme or maybe completely different uh, directions? And I find a lot of it on Twitter, or which mm. X as formerly known as Twitter, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I, I still call it Twitter, and I think we should call it Twitter. You know, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll ever stop calling it Twitter. No, it's Twitter. And there's lots of interesting stuff. I mean, there's little detail. I say, oh, yeah. So I've, I've been keeping a, a catalog in my mind of, um, well, not in my mind, I've actually started writing them down of, oh, yeah, that, that would be a good one to, uh, to add. And that, that sort of stuff is, to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm not sure why the book is considered, you know, of any significance, um, except to, you know, friends <laughs> and family. But it's, uh, it's all these little details that can be understood and seen. And the interesting thing about the book, one of the things to me, is that there's no ideas in it per se. There's nothing like pie in the sky. They are actual yeah. real things, at yeah. least almost entirely. It's, it's examples of what actually exists. It's not... Um, David Sucher's idea of, you know, that we should have X, Y, and Z. So yeah. the other interesting thing I noticed about it very recently, and I'll go take a look here. I've actually, actually got the book right in front of me, my little working draft. And an awful lot of the things actually, which I have just discovered very recently, they actually also apply to suburbs and uh -huh. awful you know, strip malls and suburbs, which we almost all, you know, detest. So there's actually lots to be learned, or I think, in terms of how you might improve them. Um, sort of things like the uh, wayfinding or uh, even just creating little playgrounds for children in a strip mall or seating, right. outside seating. It could be why right. not have outside seating in a strip mall. To either the either the, if the sides walks wide enough, that's great, or maybe you just take up a couple parking spaces. So some of those ideas are actually applicable. But yeah, anyway, uh, you've probably, I mean, you've probably noticed this as well as I have. But it seems like even in a lot of suburban areas, some of those little tricks and tips have been picked up yeah, on uh, by developers in recent definitely, years. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the things people, the it, it's it's hasn't changed enough. But there, have, there has been significant change over the last 30, 40, 50 years. I've been watching this, this stuff for 50 years now. My yeah. first job was as an urban planner um, for uh, the city of Seattle working on shoreline management. That was in 19, God, it's 1971. And um, 
uh, things have changed. It's, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite remarkable. I mean, not well, enough, but there's real, and there's significant change of consciousness. I think people have really, there have become, I, I still kind of moan and groan about it. People don't, don't look enough and see enough, but it's certainly got a lot better, dramatically better. Yeah, so. I think there's there's been a sea change in a lot of ways. So I wanted to ask you about that because even in the sure. book you described yourself as a, a urban planner and uh, a developer, mm-hmm. and I wonder if you could trace a little bit of your own career that led up not just to the book, but then even afterwards, what did, what all did you do in the years after the book? Well, um, it's mostly small scale um, developments in Seattle, neighborhood scale. Um, buildings and condominiums, uh, nothing of any great consequence to anybody except that might have ever used them. But uh, they weren't, you know, I probably, yeah, they're just basic stuff that's in tune with, with city comforts, recognizing yeah. the, you know, the constraints, the real world constraints of, of the time. How did, how did you required parking? How did you go from planner to developer? What was that process like? Oh boy, that's a well. I my first job was, as I say, was at the city as a, as a planner working on. In fact, we were it was a part of the team working on the very first uh, shoreline master program. I think they were called master, yeah, master program. And part of my job was to review permit applications. So you know, I was in my early to mid twenties, I guess, at that time. And guys, not a whole lot older, would, would come in with these rolls of plans, you know, for permits. And I started looking, I said, oh, that, that's what they do. And I, I started seeing, understanding the process of development. There was actual individuals, they'd come in and they'd buy some ground and they'd hire an architect and, and they'd get a set of plans and they'd come and get a permit and, and so forth and so on. So I found it just incredibly interesting and intriguing that that's actually how cities get created. They have actual individuals who go out there or groups, but a lot of it's small scale stuff is individuals or maybe it's they inherit a property from their grandfather or something like that or what have you. Um, and I just became interested in it. And I did the obvious thing that most people do. I mean, it's, it's long gone, but um, uh, I, I was able to um, buy an old, it wasn't even in that bad a shape. I, had a, I bought a house on Queen Anne, which is um, an in-city neighborhood. Do you know Seattle? A little bit, yeah. A little mm-hmm. bit, okay. An in-city neighborhood. And it was this, remember, this was probably 73, 74, I guess. And um, it was an estate sale, not, not surprisingly. And the house was, uh, uh, you know, was... $20,000. This is a house of 3,000 feet with a view of Puget Sound. Not a great view, but, but a, a yeah. decent view. You could still sort of, you could st- still see it somewhat. And I remember I thought that seemed like an incredible amount of money. And, you know, was it, was I going, this was this going crazy? Was I taking a terrible risk? And so one of the, uh, one of the, the, the older people in the department was one of the appraisers. We had a Department of Community Development that had a bunch of different divisions. So he, he, he volunteered to go take a look at it and on the outside. And, and um, I can't remember exactly what the terms were, but he said, 
I can't remember exactly what, but he gave me some advice. He said, yeah, it looks like good property. And here's, you know, that's not, a, that's not an unfair price. And yeah, you should go buy it. And I did. And so I remodeled it a little bit, just fixed it up. And um, uh, just found it very exciting to do. And so I went on from, you know, to other projects. So, so it's just very personal is what I'm saying. It was started yeah. with my own want, desire to, to own a house, which unfortunately Did, is very difficult. The price of, of, yeah. of admission to the game is impossibly high now. And it's really, yeah. I mean, you can't just go buy a, an old lot for $5,000 and build a house anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Did did be did doing the development stuff end up then really becoming your career that, yes. that paid the bills yes. and everything? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. I, I, and so did, did you eventually undertake like some new construction projects as well? Yeah. 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 A number of them. Yeah. Exactly. So it was it was um, just the the normal the normal things that developers do. They they try and find the right ground. Seattle's never you know Seattle's never had a tremendous depression in terms of real estate values. I mean, even in the, mm -hmm. the, the toughest times over the last 50 years, when there might be suburban really slowdowns, yeah, things would slow down in Seattle. They would come, they would, they would level off or they would, they would go, even go down a little bit. But even for the last 50, 60 years, it's been an amazingly stable market and, and strong market, especially yeah. in city. And, and now there's that's grown. The city has grown in terms of, of, of physical size. So um, yeah, it's it's been interesting. So one of the things that I've you know I've had a number of guests on here before who uh, were uh, small scale developers, and mm -hmm. uh, and we talk a lot about getting into that uh, world and and things. Do you do you ever have the chance to talk to like younger people and? It advise them or whatever about how to do something related to what you did? Yeah, I do. In fact, sometimes I, I, I've had a chance to talk to people who are interested in uh, the built environment, the physical world. And uh, I'll, I'll, I mean, depending on the person, I'll say, well, you know, you really might consider going to business school, learning about uh, with some kind of emphasis on real estate, learning about how, how that all operates. Or, um, uh, but definitely engaging it rather than, uh, even though I started as a planner, I I like to see more people doing doing development because yeah. I think that's how that's how we get good development where people can both have a a uh, I don't want to call it I don't want to get kind of um, oh what's the word. Uh, Oh, too too idealistic. I mean, it's it's a business, and you you have to make money at it. Um, mm -hmm. But you can do it really well, or you can do it kind of without any care in the world. And I think that people can do both. It's possible to do both. And so the, yeah. the more people who have, I think, a sensibility that you and I share, um, should go into real estate development. And yeah. it's it, and the problem is, of course, that even just building a single family house is just you know it's in seattle lots are i don't know what in city five hundred thousand seven hundred thousand a million i haven't really kept track but but prices that are simply breathtaking that yeah. people are, are able, that builders are able to buy an individual lot for those prices and then make money on selling a house there so yeah so, and that's very difficult it's very difficult yeah it's, and, and it's interesting to think about it. i know 
uh, we'll get back to talk about the book, but I'm really curious about all this, especially sure. related to your work and, and then the Seattle market. So like for a younger person, let's say somebody who's 25 or 30 years old that is in Seattle and they'd love to do what you did, where, where would you have them look or what would you have them think about starting to try to do? Well, you know, the, the, a good thing has actually happened, and this relates back to the one of the uh, to to an article I wrote, and I think you mentioned it in one of your emails about one triplex per block. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, the city has I, not not due to my article. It's been in the air for you know ten years or, or more. Um, Seattle uh, changed its uh, backyard cottage, its, its accessory unit law, uh, pretty dramatically about three or four years ago, and I haven't agreed with an awful lot that the city council has done. But our city council really did a great job on this this dadu adu dadu accessory dwelling <laughs> unit detached accessory dwelling unit for anybody that's not into the jargon. Um, they've done a really pr pretty very progressive, very smart. And so uh, I would say to somebody who is really interested, I I would think that that one one path would be, and this is not easy either, is um, you know, buy a house and and then expand it, make it into basically a triplex. The Seattle law has effectively, and this is this is the city of Seattle. It's not necessarily all the, the the surrounding jurisdictions, though. They've also they've 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 those are changing too. I'm not sure how much, but 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 they're changing as well. Seattle effectively now allows a triplex as of right on virtually every single family lot in the city. There's no, in fact, the city has formally changed it from single family zoning to, I think it's called, I felt, you know, like light residential or hmm. low residential, something like that, indicating that it's no longer quote, single family, it's, it's a smaller scale. And the, uh, so that, that would be one path. If somebody had the ability to buy a house, you know, you'd have to look at the the potential for for expansion. Does it is it enough? Um, uh, is there enough ground there physically, and does the zoning allow it, and so forth? So, first of all, it teaches you an awful lot about the whole transaction of of buying a property just in the course right. of, of buying a single family house. I mean, I shudder to think that very very few people in their twenties could ever do that. They're probably making so much money that they're probably not interested in going into real estate development, it, yeah. being realistic about it. Somebody in their 20s probably cannot afford to, to do what I, I mean. I hadn't really thought about it before, but it really is sad. I, I think very few younger people could do what we were able to do at, at our age, or my, my age anyway, um, yeah. in terms of get into um, having a house to live in, which is the primary goal. It shouldn't be a money-making thing unless you're also interested in just learning about development, where you kill two birds with one stone. You've got this terrific learning experience, plus you have a place that you can have fun with and, and enjoy living in. Um, so, and uh, so the uh, uh, that would that would be one one path that would be practical for some some people. Um, right. Where you look for it, you know, you just sort of that's part of the real estate. You figure out where's the Where's the, um, uh, where can you afford and what's happening with overall neighborhood, neighborhood change? Yeah. Uh, so that yeah. there's, so that there's demand for housing, but there's, boy, you know, in Seattle, 
and I, I don't know, and it's, it's not just Seattle. There's an awful lot of places in this country. This, we're, we're a very prosperous country. We're mm-hmm. really kind of, with all of our problems, which are substantial, it, it's, there's a lot of prosperity and a lot of, lot of growth. Um, so that would yeah. be one path. Interesting. So um, talking back about the book again for a minute. So one thing I'm curious mm-hmm. about, um, I, you know, the book itself obviously is organized into these very short, you know, little vignettes, basically right. one, one or two or three pages about things. Right. It, it certainly has the feel of like pattern language uh, by oh, Christopher totally. Alexander. Was that a big Absol- influence for you? Absolutely. Totally. I mean, there's no, no question. I can't remember exactly. I, I'm not sure if it was, I mean, I was aware of the book and I, I liked the book very much. I didn't agree with all of the details, of course, um, but it was inspiring. And I think I, I think it just showed me that I don't have to write uh, a long narrative. In fact, yeah. I can't. I'm not able to. It's just not one of my skills. I can write well, but for about 100 words or 200 <laughs> words, you know, more than that, I, a narrative of, of, you know, it's not it's not me. It's not my my ability. It's actually but, really uh, well well suited to the social media age. So exactly. No, no. I, I find it in, in terms of reading these days, I can read. And I, I learned about this is, this is a whole different insight. I, I, I can read novels. I can read, you know, like uh, uh, Lee Child's Jack Reacher novels. I love those. Yeah. I, but and I, but I, I can't read. And I'm not proud of this. It's just a fact. Uh, I, I find it difficult to read a long uh, nonfiction book. Most of the time, they're simply too long. And I yeah. think that does relate to the economics of publishing. A publisher really can't. And I know I learned this from my experience, at least that's my, my observation. I learned this from self-publishing about the economics of, of actually manufacturing a book, of printing it and then and producing it. And it's the, the, the cost of, of producing a book, suppose a book really, the author really has about 75 pages to say. Well, publisher just, it's not economic because nobody really wants to buy a 75 page book for $20, yeah. but the publisher really has to sell it for something like that. So there's a sort of an encouragement and this is my surmise. I don't really know that that's what happens in the publishing world. But this is my observation that in terms of if I wanted to simply do another short book now that was 75 pages, it would be it would almost in this get into the same realm of cost if you really start externalizing all the or internalizing all the costs of, of an editor doing it. Like when my labor's free when I do that kind of stuff. But but if if you're a if you're a real publisher you have a staff doing that and, and handling one book of 75 pages is going to be the same internal overhead and general conditions in, in, in construction terms of um, a 200 page or a 300 page book. I mean, it'd be, of course, it'd be more editing time and, you know, right. there'd be obviously more manufacturing in terms of pages and ink and so forth. So I think that's one of the reasons to, to my mind, a lot of books are uh, too long. Now, yeah. if you're a real specialist, you might want to have a 300-page book on something because you really want to look at it very carefully. But me, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, 
I, I can't do that anymore. Well, just, <laughs> it, I mean, it's funny. I've got like this uh, collection of books next to my bed that uh, a whole bunch of nonfiction books. And I, ha I have a hell of a time now picking them up and wading through. Them. I know. But, you know, but like I you, understand. I can sit, I can sit down with a novel and I can read novel after right. novel and it's fine. Yeah. But and yeah. part of it's the skill, you know, like yeah. like. I'm looking forward to, and I hope I'm sure. Obviously, I'm not the only one of the, the last um, uh, uh, volume for the um, LBJ um, biography mm -hmm. saga, uh, yeah. and that that I probably will read through because yeah. it's just so incredibly well written and engrossing that it really does. I, I will read the whole thing, but yeah. that's not that's. That's not well, his very book, common. And his books are more like a novel than he's uh, a he's you know he's book. he's brilliant. He's not your typical yeah. I'm afraid he's he's just he's incredibly good at it at being yeah. a writer. Carol yeah. talking about Robert Carroll, yeah, of course. Right, right. So yeah, it's tough. It's tough. So when you when you wrote the book uh, in the nineties, what what sort of reaction did you get to it um, at the time, and or, or feedback or or anything that came about as a result of writing that book? Well, by and large, positive. Um, I I look back on it and I sort of regret a little bit that I didn't get much more critical criticism as opposed to simply praise. And I realized maybe if they if they had taken it more seriously, they might have have attacked it more. Hmm. Sort of, sort of uh, found found the flaws in it, mm -hmm. or the the problems, or but basically, I mean, I, I was very positive. I mean, it's yeah. it, so it's it's been, um, um, uh, yeah, no, it's it's I, I would call it a, a you know a modest success. It was it 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 got good good words from 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 a lot of people. Well, I still was there get people. I'm sorry. Go I was going to say, was there any impact locally, like in the Seattle market, in terms of people reading it, talking to you about no, it, or zero, yeah. <laughs> zero? No, I've been I've been invited to speak as far away as Saudi Arabia, New Zealand. The book was translated into Japanese, um, but locally, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> nothing. It's just it's it's uh, uh, taken for granted, I guess. So, yeah. but it's. Well, you're never you're never an expert in your own town. Yeah, so, uh, exactly. I guess that holds for it's, everybody. Yeah, it's that's the truism, and it's true. Yeah, well, it, it's fascinating. I picked the book up again this morning, and I was kind of paging through it, and I've got this kind of ridiculous, like dog-eared uh, yeah. copy that I've Good. had forever. Um, and one of the things you know that really stuck out to me is that even though it's almost thirty years old, it, there's so much of it that feels like could be written today. That uh, as you mentioned, I think there has been an absolute sea change in a lot of thinking and attitudes, mm -hmm. and certainly a positivity towards city life. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's many, many of the suggestions and details and everything that that we still seem to get wrong over and over again in in cities everywhere. Uh, and that we could, it's almost like people could benefit from picking this up as if it was a brand new book. Well, that's what I've been. I've I've received. Um sort of maybe I'm just thinking about it or more aware of it, but I've received a, a, a you know, enough spontaneous um, praise that it has made me think about, um, yes, the world hasn't changed enough. Um, the book would still be valuable. A third edition would still be uh, useful to, um, 
to people, especially if it was because there's still you know millions and millions of people out there. Um, it's I think the what has changed interestingly is is my emphasis on the three rules a yeah. lot. You know that that has become not because of me, but I think that's just generally sort of so obvious, and it's it's I'm yeah. not the only one saying it, but that has become much more a uh, oh an assumption about in urbanism. People are able to articulate that the the reason this building is not so good is because it's has I mean obviously Jane Jacobs was the first one to really talk mm -hmm. about it, but blank walls, you know that there had to be. She was the one who emphasized the 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 necessity for the the um, the permeability, of, yep. I'm not sure if that's the word she used, but that's my word. The permeability from of the building from, from of the building in terms of the people inside it to the people outside of it and vice versa. Yeah, um, and, it, and and you know, if I'm just going to interrupt you, I'm just going to highlight those three rules because I, I think it's important uh, to refresh you know people's memory. But they're just really basic. Uh, rules yeah. and patterns that you told them very basic one, yeah one build to the sidewalk number two is make the street front permeable and number three put the parking behind or under or above or to the side of the building right so, right right and there's and of course you, three i'm sorry go ahead i didn't mean to. I was gonna say if you do those three things you're 80 percent of the way towards making a really good place exactly and that's that's and there's there's three associated just for anybody that's listening. They there's three associated sub rules. But I, I think one of the things it's it's it, I, I, Seattle has a design review process, and I was unfortunately I have to say part of the creation of that process, and I reg I regret a the way it's it's evolved because mm -hmm. apparently right now um, it, it can take a year eighteen months. For a project, you know, a 30, 40, 50 unit apartment building, which is not that big these days because the right. zoning has has changed so much that it's it's the city is encouraging projects of five, six, seven stories with of, of quite a few with reduced parking requirements as well. Right. Uh, and I think an awful lot of design review, dramatic amount of design review, could be simplified by asking, does the building uh, uh, reflect the three rules, and if it did, you'd say, "Oh, okay, that's that's seventy-five or eighty percent there." You know, fine. Then we get into some other little refinements, like uh, like one of the sub rules would be I can't remember here. Yeah, no, uh, right. The sub rule on on the building front being permeable says no reflective glass or other yeah. things that would block. Now there you get into another interesting subject of how do you manage things down the road. Because I notice a lot of the the drugstores, CVS or I guess I can't remember the uh, which ones there. We just we had a local chain that chain, uh, Bartels, um, which was just absorbed by a, another a much larger company in the last year or so, and I can't even remember who it is. Maybe I still call it Bartels. In any case, a lot of those stores will have big, and maybe supermarkets do it as well. They have big signs up in the front of the the windows. That the the design may the, the 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 city may have said yes you have to have eighty percent, you know glass on your front right. and it, it but then they'll put up signs and the thing is the 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 building inspectors see that and everybody you know people go in all kinds of city officials of all related to the building department see that but but there's no training of the staff 
to, to explain, look, this is actually very significant. Lacking visibility is, is not, we don't want that. And so yeah. you really need to, if you see that, you need to go that up to the chain of command and have them start the process of writing a letter to the, you know, the building manager or, or the store owner or what have you and say, look, that's breaking the rules. You're not supposed to do that. And here's the reasons why, you know, because your store really does contribute to the overall local neighborhood economy, but you're hindering it by having these signs up. But we don't have that internal consciousness yet. So there's still a long way to go in, internally in terms of, of simple things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's also true that I think uh, if city, if, if a lot of city governments would just, you know, if, if they could dial it down to nothing else but those three basic approaches. Oh, right, right, right. You know, that they, you know. Absolutely. So, and so there's no reason why, why the city has, why Seattle has a year to 18 months design review. And I, I look at some of the buildings, I say, yeah, they're okay, but they took 18 months to do that? You know, <laughs> wait a second. I mean, that's just, it just doesn't, it's, I, I, don't, I don't get it. And yeah. I, 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 have, I have to admit, I haven't gone through the process of, of, of any of those buildings, so I don't really see the internal dynamics, but... I, I know that the time frames apparently are, are so, and I see the buildings, and yeah, they're better than they were in the 1950s, but right. it's mostly because of things like the three rules. I don't want to say it's it's my my doing, but at all, obviously, it's part of a sea change of consciousness in terms of urbanism. Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think there's been a broader change in in everybody's awareness, yeah. uh, including developers, uh, yeah. about what what works for different you, buildings. You know what we'll really know, well what we will really see when things are changed is if the Prisker Prize is awarded to CNU as yeah. as the winner when you know Plater Zyberg and Duani and yeah. the others they they should receive an award. Now that's a long, you know, that's not going to happen for a while. That's a whole different consciousness in the that's, architecture world. Yeah, it's but probably they, a generational shift at some point. Yeah. yeah, but they should be getting. I mean, they're they're Absolutely. far more important to than than almost any of the other star architects. I mean, f yeah. vastly more important. And a lot of that's come not just from the organization, but that just that general change of consciousness. And I think they have been definitely been, been leaders of it and, and deservedly yeah. should be awarded, rewarded, I guess is it. So, yeah, yeah, no, I, no, it, it's, it's, it's a useful way of explaining urbanism to people. I wanted to read one uh, early section of the book back to you and, and have you react to it at the risk of uh, embarrassing oh, yeah, you. But, right, because uh, I might, I might, I might have, I, this is this stuff's from a long time ago. I, I might have changed my mind. I so. Well, I, I think this is really interesting. And it's just basically where you talk about comfort that, you know, my, you said my own experience with local government is as a staff member, citizen and real estate developer. And I believe our society makes the problem of city building far too complicated. We confuse it with grandeur and we confuse it with complex public administration. It is, it is neither. The main task is making people feel comfortable, the same task faced by the host at a party. In fact, uh, think of the main job for the city planner as being the Amy Van Vanderbilt of the city. Uh, all around us are examples of excellence in concept and design city comforts. They are simple to recognize, simple to explain, and by and large, simple to build. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think that's an incredibly eloquent way to talk sort of like tee off 
the book. I wonder how you react uh, to that and think about or expand upon that today. It sounds good to me. I mean, I didn't, if, if you, if you, it's, if, if I hadn't, if somebody else had read it, I'd say that's kind of vaguely familiar. I certainly agree with it, but I don't remember writing that. So, yeah. but no, no, I think I'm, I'll stick with that. I think it's, it's so, I mean, you can, you can make a counter argument and say, well, look, people want, we, they want lots of parking. That makes yeah. people comfortable too. And say, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's still a matter of, 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 to some degree of taste. If you want to live in a walkable neighborhood, you have to figure out how to handle the parking in a different way than having it right on the, you know, yeah. at, at the edge of the uh, sidewalk. It's yeah. the simplest, you know, way of, of explaining the difference between suburbia and, um, uh, you know, cities. Right. So what, uh, over the years, you've probably had the chance to look at things that you wrote or think about them. Is, are there aspects that have changed uh, in terms of your thinking about city design and uh, some of the details and, and otherwise? Uh, not really. I mean, I've sort of, I, I live in a detached house and I like the space. I'm a little less, and I probably not, uh, so I'm, I'm, this may be not quite exactly the question that you're, you're asking, but I'm, I'm a little less patient now with people um, diminishing the very widespread preference for a detached house, not because of this detached per se, but because of the space and flexibility. And so I'm little, I know a lot of people are very, uh, you know, they, they knock it and they, claim that it's it's a manifestation of racism and so forth and so on. And I say, well, you know, that some of those things may or may not be true. That's a separate issue. But but there is something nice about having a lot of room. And yeah. so I guess I'm if to the extent that I might have have knocked single family, and I don't even remember doing that, but I might have sort of sort of dissed um, single family housing, I probably would have changed my my view, because yeah. there's a certain genius. I mean, there's a certain genius to the to the uh, American. Uh, it's not because it's American, but just it's because it's we had the space to do it. The the right. single family. You you know, one a develop a builder with a pickup truck and a laborer can build an awful lot of housing. And I I remember seeing one plot. This is I lived on Bainbridge Island at one time, and I remember. There's smart developers. His, I think his son is still running the company. He, he bought a plat. I can't remember which, which one of our building cycles, but he bought a plat and with about 100 lots in it. And he slowly built it out, and it was successful, I'm pretty sure. And I remember a framer, he, he framed that whole house for him. And he had one, one um, this, for this 100-lot um, uh, subdivision, he had one superintendent that came around and made sure the housing was done right. And he hired out, and, and there was one guy, I remember, who was a very good framer. He built it, he, he framed it himself. And I remember he was complaining about how he'd gotten back charged for, for throwing some pop cans onto the site. And the, <laughs> the, the, the builder was very meticulous about a, you know, a job site. He, he back charged, he wanted to, to, to find his 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 own subcontractors if they huh. if they violated it, which I thought was kind of neat. I didn't say anything, I don't think, but I thought, yeah, that's actually makes sense to me. 
But, um, and I thought, so it, it, the American house building is, is very, you know, I think the word is scalable. You can scale it up dramatically and you can scale it down. If there's a building depression, you just stop building. You don't have yeah. to, you know, that, that's why the, the, my, I'm very skeptical and I have written a little bit about this here and there about factory housing. And I have had some experience with it. I was, I've been in the, I've had some experience with modular housing and they certainly have a, a role but when you look at having a large factory that's sitting there all the time, even when there's a housing depression, you know, you have to factor that in. And so there's, there's a real genius to the uh, single family housing market, housing construction method. And I, I, I do think it's, we may want to change it, but there's something to, to acknowledge about it, that it has worked. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because I think a lot of people who are not uh, in the housing world or the construction world, they they don't understand just how incredibly easy and quick and efficient it is to build a, a stick frame. Uh, exactly, building. exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it's remarkable. It really is yeah. a, a good team. Now it has changed. It's gotten far more complex. And the regulations have gotten more complex. And they'll build. There's you need for anything. You know, I, I don't know if they do with single family, but building envelope consultants come in to make sure that it's it's doesn't have problems because of we've changed the requirements in terms of interior ventilation and 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 weatherproofing and sealing them and so forth so yeah. it, it's it is different than it was in the 60s 70s and 80s but yeah. no it's still but it's it's a remarkably uh, 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 simple system in many yeah. respects well, and and I think, you know, I think I also understand what you're getting at from the sense, you know, I guess it ties back to the book a little bit, but uh, I, you know, I think I first came, when I came across your book, I was um, fresh out of college and, you know, filled with all of the the big grand ideas that you get uh, in college. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I went to, I went to architecture school and, and, and I think there was, you know, within architecture, especially there's a lot, there's a, there's a a general tendency towards like utopian thinking, uh, which probably surprises people right, in right, architecture right. school, but it's, it, there's a lot no, of kind no. of grand utopian ideas. Yeah. And uh, then I come across your book and it's just so eminently like practical and things that people can pick up and do. And, you know, you can understand right away. And I think that's probably one thing that really grabbed me and, and was attracted but there's always this this kind of tension between like the practical and the utopian within within our world. Yeah, I'm very I, you know I started off in the in the uh, I graduated from college in '67. If you can just you know visualize the if you look think about that that time. And so I was very much driven by utopian utopian thinking. Uh, I guess it it and I still I mean. Tyre, I don't know if you know, do you know Tyre de Chardin, the, 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 the uh, Jesuit uh, anthropologist, written a book, is very utopian in some ways, some people would say it's not, but I, I'm very, I understand utopian thinking very much. And I guess it, it, it changed when I started seeing how buildings were built, how projects actually came together. I realized how, how, and when I started doing it, trying to do it myself, and I realized how complicated it is. Even the simplest thing is complicated. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's certainly, it, it's, it's a lesson, but. Um, 
and and it's not to say that like having ideals is a bad thing. I mean, I'm I'm still idealistic in many ways and have big dreams, but I just think it's good to have it measured by you know an understanding of how things actually get done and and where people where maybe where an individual can actually do something because mm-hmm. uh, it's easy to get lost in 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 the big ideas. Uh, and I, I think your discussion about the the single family house. Uh, is relevant to that because you're right in the planning world right now, there's a lot of demonization of single family detached housing, which is by far the default housing in our country. Uh, and so I always kind of look at it like, yeah, those, some of those critiques I, I agree with the, some of them are right, but it's also, it's like the default pattern that we have in almost every city in the country. And uh, we have what we have and you know, what, how do we work with it? How do we improve it? Because uh, it's not, yeah, yeah. I mean, the idea it's going to all be swept away and radically changed is, uh, it's frankly, it's just not going to happen. Well, the thing that one of the things that's interesting, and it it does lead to a to a, a an initiative, is I look at I hear people say, and I, I I don't know if they're even serious about it. We should get rid of zoning completely. Let anything be built anywhere, you know. And I thought, well, okay, but do you really think? that there's a construction supply chain. Do you think there's enough labor to actually build those buildings? So, so what if you, if you, you could build this a five story or six story apartment building anywhere, you know, yeah. and you somehow think there's gonna, we're gonna solve the housing, whatever housing problems we have, because, and I'd say, no, there's just simply not enough labor. Now that leads us to another thing in education. We should be stressing vocational training, training a lot more. We should be having it uh, more, more voc tech schools and we should be encouraging people to, uh, to do it. I mean, I, I look back, I think, what would, what would have been my ideal education? I said, well, you know, maybe I should have been a plumber or an electrician or, or ta- you know, a specialist, or in in some other in, in some other actual trade, and that I relate to the trades. It could be other other things too, and that doesn't mean that that somebody is um, uh, sort of. Uh, it's not a class thing where that means they can't they can't ever um, you know get rich basically in our in our culture. Because if you look around, I don't think there are very many. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've often wondered, you know, plumbers do, plumbing companies can do very, very well. And I think, I I wonder how many plumbing companies are, were built or managed by MBAs from Harvard. I doubt it. (laughs) I think they were probably all, you know, there were people from the trades and they were smart and they recognized an opportunity and they realized, now I know the plumbing trade, but I'd like to make some more money. Being a plumber is okay. But I'd rather, you know, make a lot more money than that. So I'm going to just build a plumbing business. And I, I think, and I'm not trying to diminish the, the ease, you know, I'm not trying to say it's simple to do that. But, but there's a lot of potential for, for individual growth in, in the trades in terms yeah. of, it's, they don't come, you know, and they're pretty good sized companies. They may not be, you know, may not be plumbing companies. There may be no 
IBMs, or I guess that's a that's an old old way of describing big <laughs> IBM. <laughs> that dates me, all right. I, know, I, I get where you're going. Yeah, um, no, I know. And probably a lot of people would understand that too. But but it's still funny when I said that. I realized, no, you don't use <laughs> IBM as a measure of 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 huge of size. Yeah, you know that's that's kind of funny. Yeah. But so well, it's but it's interesting. I had um, it makes me think. I had a developer friend of mine who used to tell me that um, a local guy here that. Uh, the happiest people he knew were the master electricians that worked on his jobs, you know, and they worked 40 hours a week. They all made mm -hmm. really good money. They had mm -hmm. a, they had a house at the lake. They had a house yep. here. They had a house at yep. the lake and a boat. And the, you know, they felt he's like, they have a great life. They're all really happy and enjoying what they're doing. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, what, what you're talking about. Yeah. I think electricians, especially because it, that does that, that does require a pretty because of the life safety issues. It does require some real um, training. I mean, you just can't. Yeah. You know, it, it, you have you've got to do it right, or else people get right. die. And right. so, so they they probably have more training on average. Maybe not as plumbers. Maybe similarly with plumbers, where there's also life safety issues. Right. Uh, it's not an on the job thing as much. Right. So, but anyway. That's just an aside. I, I do want to hit on the triplex on the corner issue just because for sure. people who may not be as familiar with uh, the discussion that was had in Seattle. Uh, and I say that because I think, again, this was another, I, I looked at, I read your article when it came out. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a, a great way of taking something that was complex that people were talking about and dissecting it into a very specific practical application. I wonder if you could, talk about like where that came out of the the housing policy discussions in, in Seattle. Well, I guess I was just reread it myself. Uh, and I, I, and I, it, it's totally accurate. What it says in the article is I was listening to one of the uh, local um, uh, elected officials, city councilwoman, who said, uh, well, you know, um, we do need, we have a housing problem. But it's not going to be solved or really even it's not going to be a particularly significant factor if we built a triplex on every block. And I was pleased with myself, I had to say, a little, <laughs> that I, was, I actually listened to people. And so she said that. And I said, I mean, I listen very intensely to people when people make factual statements or, or numbers, anything that involves numbers. Yeah. I, always, I always think, oh, what are the actual, let's do the math. So I thought, okay, a triplex, and she's saying a building one triplex in every block wouldn't be significant. I said, okay, maybe, maybe not. So I had an acquaintance who at the city who was able to um, use their uh, uh, GIS system. And I didn't know how he did it, but he was able to figure out how many blocks there are and how many block faces or whatever number we used. And... Um, I just did the simple math. I said, you know, there's a certain number of block faces. If you put one triplex on every block, depending on whatever definition you want to use, uh, that amounts to a significant amount of, of housing. So yeah. let's at least, you know, so let's, why don't we take that seriously? And then, of course, people, uh, they say, well, how would you decide, you know, which one? And I say, well, you know, it could be the very first one on the block. 
And they say, well, that wouldn't be fair. And I say, wait a second, if nobody wants to build and it will okay, then build another one on the block. I mean, it's sort of like, like it's, 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 it's kind of funny to, 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 to attack it because it would be too successful. Too many people <laughs> would want to yeah. build a triplex, one triplex on every block. So how are we going to allocate them? Which <laughs> may be true in some neighborhoods and that's fine. You know, yeah. that, that would, wouldn't yeah. bother me. So what was yeah. the, what, what other, ask, what, what, what else struck you about it as just, as, because well, it's so simple? I th it's the a, fact that it was such a simple way, and instead of like a broad sweeping change to like every lot from a zoning standpoint, that you could, you could just target and say, uh, you know, we could say the corner lots of every block could right, be Right, exactly. That, uh, that which was... Yeah, which is easy to build because it turns right, a corner, so right, it's easier to right, get three units. Right, right. And then you're not necessarily changing everybody's zoning everywhere to have to get it done. That's exactly when I did have some fruitful discussions with people. Somebody suggested, well, a neat way to do it. It might have been an architect, in fact, in fact, said, yeah, yeah, we should just say on, on corner lots. That we should yeah. allow some number on corner lots, maybe every corner, but whatever. You yeah. know, designate only corner lots where you could do that as as a test. And I said, yeah, that sounds fine. That's not bad. Yeah. So yeah. it's that's interesting you mentioned that, that you say corners. That's exactly yeah. what somebody else said. Yeah, Good. I think we've had some discussions here in the past about just even thinking about like duplexes on corner lots in, in single yeah. family neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. and so uh, I think in a, in a higher demand housing market um, where you can uh, do the triplex or even a fourplex, it, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I wonder if uh, you want to talk about the the gondola real quick. Oh, absolutely, definitely. I, I find it absolutely fascinating from many respects. I don't know how many of your listeners will even have ever heard of the Little Cottonwood Canyon or the Big Cottonwood Canyon, but there there are two canyons that are very close to Salt Lake City within bus distance, literally. I mean, there used to be a city bus going up. To, to them. Uh, each, each of those canyons has two very, very good uh, ski areas. And there's been a, uh, a proposal from the ski areas in, to build a gondola from the base of the Little Cottonwood Canyon to the ski areas, which is about eight and a half miles. And the, the, uh, it's been subject to intense intense um, discussion in Salt Lake over the last five or six years. And the Utah Department of Transportation, I guess it became such a, an issue and it was taken seriously that the Utah Department of Transportation uh, did a study on it and finally came up with a, a, a final EIS and a, a decision. And if it's a federal, I checked into this, it's, it's, it's under NEPA, it's under the National Environmental Policy Act because there's so many um, state uh, national forests that are okay. um, in the path of the gondola. So somehow it's involved with, with, um, with federal law. Well, not somehow, it's involved with federal law and permissions. And the, the, uh, the Department of Transportation, UDOT, uh, made, a, made a decision in July, which I consider to have been uh, inspired and I, th I think that everybody is, should be very happy about it. The, the advocates of the, is the end of a specific question? Was there anything that no, go ahead. I should you, fill you, in? Okay, the, the, I think the advocates, were at the, 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 the opponents rather of the gondola have done a terrific job 
of of stopping it essentially as as I, as I see it and I guess I should also praise the advocates from the beginning they were able to get this thing going five or six years ago so uh, they're the they're at this point I I see as the the big losers uh, but the state legislature the the, the in, what's really interesting about it is this, the 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 headlines in the papers locally in in Salt Lake the media all say something like. Department of Transportation decides in favor of the gondola. And so you read that and you say, oh no, what a terrible thing. Oh, that's horrible. I'm, a, I'm opposed to the gondola. I think it's, it's, it's a bad idea. I think it's, it's just it, a lot of reasons why, but so it's, it's not a good idea. And but people, the headlines are presented as that. When you read the article and you read the record of decision, it says, um, the, the, to do this, we're going to do it in three phases. Phase one is going to be an enhanced bus system, which is the core of it. Um, even something as simple, and it's getting back to city comforts and the, and the details, uh, one of the problems with the traffic, I, sh I probably didn't really explain this very well, the reason there's a gondolist uh, proposal at all is because the traffic gets, can get very bad going up to the mm -hmm. ski areas because it's a narrow canyon and it's steep and it's a lot of snow and so there's problems with with traffic snarls and one of the things in phase one that the the state is calling for is an enhanced enhanced enforcement of its existing uh laws requiring uh drivers to have at least snow tires i thought wait a second that's pretty simple so you don't have a, you don't have a, a a cop or you have a uh, a, uh, a skier employee at the base of the, at the of the canyon with a big sign saying, "You'll be ticketed if you, you know, get caught, you know, not using uh, snow tires." And apparently, no, it hasn't been done because I've driven. I've never seen you. Uh, you know, maybe there's a sign that says, "No, you have to have snow tires or some kind of other traction device." But it's it's apparently that is one of the from I'm told by anecdotally that that's actually one of the reasons there's traffic jams is because somebody some um, uh, will drive up in a car with you know summer tires and they'll get stuck. You know whether they're simply risking it or naive or whatever. But the, the, the core of the decision is that it's going it, to give 100, the, the state legislature, and I think they should be complimented too, um, as a, uh, they're giving $150 million as part of this phase one. Now, the phase three is actually building the gondola and, and even the highway department, the, not the highway department, Department of Transportation is mm -hmm. saying that's not going to happen until the 2040s. So I'm thinking, yeah. wait a second, We're, you're saying that the gondola is going to be the winner, but you're not going to build it into the 2040s. How is that a win for the people <laughs> who are advocating a gondola? The, gus, the bus system, which is when and the state and the state's not giving any money, at least anything significant that's noticeable in terms of in, in, of moving the gondola forward. But they're putting up one hundred fifty million dollars for phase one, which is uh, the core of which is is the, the is buses, and and yet there's a feeling among a lot of people the among the gondola opponents in the Salt Lake area uh, that it's it's some sort of like maybe not disaster but close to disaster. Yeah. There's even talk I've heard about appealing the the huh. final EIS, which to me would be kind of like. 
you know, if I was a gondola advocate, I'd say, uh, you know, throw me in the briar patch. You know, yeah. it's just like, uh, you know, what better way to, 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 to put things back than by appealing it. And then at that point, Utah, the forces at Utah uh, DOT would be very uh, kind of maybe required even, but they certainly might be logically inclined to say, well, look, since this is such in such doubt right now, we won't do anything. We'll put that $150 million for buses aside and wait till we'll see what the courts say. Well, now that's that to me is crazy. To me, what the, I, the analogy I draw was I was involved very, very in a minor, very minor way with um, Seattle's um, refusal to take part in some nuclear power plants in the 1970s. And that was also very contentious back, back then. And the city council very wisely decided not to take part by investing in these, these nuclear power plants, this nuclear power plants, plants four and five in a sequence of them in favor of, of essentially of conservation, the soft approach, the hard approach of the big capital intensive kind of all or nothing um, uh, gondola or nuclear power plant versus the scalable incre incremental um, conservation. And in this case, in, in the analogy would be in Utah of buses and enforcement and other, other measures. And I, right. so I, I'm very, I'm very inspired by what they've done. Now, obviously, let me say, I, I'm not a Utah local, so I'm obviously missing a lot of the the kind of nuance and details about um, Utah politics. And so, I, it maybe if I really got tutored in it, I might change my mind and realize no, it is not a very good thing. Even though it looks great, it's not actually good. But yeah. from the outsider, I think it looks inspired. The the yeah. the the powers that be are granting money for the incremental, which is ties in with city comforts. In, city comforts is all about incrementalism. Yeah. Um, they're, they're, they're opting for an incremental approach to solve this transportation problem at, that can, with buses and other, other means. But I think I, I see buses as the core. And so it's fascinating. And that's where I believe that the, the locals should be uh, focusing on and making yeah. sure that phase one works so that phase three, the actual gondola, you know, by 2038, people are saying, gondola, why should we have a gondola? We have this excellent bus system. Why do we need to bother with, with something like that? Yeah. So I, I, it's, I, it's fascinating because that's in that world uh, of departments of transportation, you almost never get that kind of incremental uh, exactly. approach. Exactly. It's always like the Holy Grail project. Exactly. Or I, I think it's important enough should should get some kind of if I was a longer form writer, if I had that ability, somebody should really explain what happened there. And uh, because it's a very, very interesting subject and exactly all the subtleties, you know, hey, I'm, I may be all wrong. Maybe I'm, I'm missing. Maybe I've got a, a, a false view or, you know, <laughs> the, the Pollyannish view um, of, of what's what's happened. But I think it's great. And I, I think every the, the opponents should be praised for because obviously, you, you know, it, without the the opponents. I, I doubt very much if if UDOT and the legislature would be doing the plan that you know the, what they're doing right. now. It's it's so it's it's part of their their pushback on it that got us to where we are or they are. Um, yeah. So no, it's it is. I think it's 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 a real 
I, you know, it's progress. It's big progress. Yeah, and, and, and I think it, it ties very well, like you said, to the theme that we had sort of the, the utopian moonshot approach versus the gradual incremental. Exactly. Uh, exactly. It's not a, a gondola. I mean, you don't know if it's going to work until you've spent $500 million or more in building a gondola. You don't know if it's, and then, and then because it also depends on, on people actually using it and, and it just becomes a, uh, you don't know until you've spent all that money, but you yeah. can find out with buses uh, is, 10 more buses going to work or it will have much an impact or 20 buses, so forth. Right. Now that's, this is a very interesting design question and maybe where time may be up very shortly, but I think one of the fascinating things that I would be working on if I were a, a Utah local is I'd be hound dogging the UDOT, UDOT, the Utah Department of Transportation to look into the optimum bus that will go up and down those canyons. It's a short haul bus. It doesn't have to be more than eight or 10 or 12 miles from the, you know, the parking lots or to the ski areas, but it has to have a lot of things. You have to be able to, uh, well, it's an interesting design problem. You want people yeah. to, to get in and off a bus into and out of a bus with clunky ski boots. So you want to make yeah. it easy and safe for people. You want it to get up, fast so the bus can doesn't have a long long stop times doesn't take it's not, you, you couldn't use a school bus very right. awkward you couldn't use a greyhound you need a you need a very different kind of bus maybe that bus already exists or maybe it could be easily developed but that to me if i were involved with this i would be focusing on on the bus system and specifically the bus design because that's going to be because right now people, a lot of times I was up there skiing last last year and I was talking with some other non-locals, some other out of towners, and I mentioned the gondola because I was fascinated when I started learning about it. I said, "What'd you think about it as a bus system?" He said, "Oh, I hate buses. I'm not going to get on a bus. No, that's no fun." And I and I said, "Okay, well that's that's how most people think of buses. You know, right. they they think it's a suboptimum solution." And so the, the focus, I believe, should be, among other things, is making sure those, that bus system really works beautifully, splendidly. And that yeah. means a very interesting industrial design question. I think that if, if I could uh, uh, wave a magic wand, I'd have, have the, uh, there's probably an industrial design program at the University of Utah. Why doesn't some, some, you know, some professors there get together and, and assign it as a uh, student project? What's, what's based on a chassis that's an off-the-shelf you know, bus chassis? You don't have to, you want to start yeah. with something that already exists that's easily, easily obtainable. You know, what's, what's the ideal shuttle bus for our situation look like? You realize this, this is something interesting. They're actually already doing this. The, uh, um, some of the buses, or maybe all of the buses, uh, that are used on those on those um, routes. There is a bus going up the uh, uh, Little Cottonwood Canyon, Big Cottonwood, and some other another canyon too, another ski area. They have apparently there's a technology where the driver, bus driver, can engage chains while the vehicle is in motion. Huh. I had never even heard about that, but I was told wow. about that by a bus driver. One of the bus drivers said, yeah, you can, I don't know exactly the details about how it works and all, but actually you can engage the chains from the bus driver 
in the cab while he or she is driving it. And I think that is, that is amazing. I think it's very cool. And that, yeah. that sort of, because I was thinking, well, gosh, they have to have chains on buses. They've got to stop. But no, they don't. They, they use them typically, apparently, in, uh, oftentimes in school buses, small, you know, because they have the same situation. They can't have the bus driver stop on the side of the road with kids and all that stuff. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, this, it's, that, that would be a very interesting design problem. What is an ideal ski shuttle bus for the uh, little Cottonwood Canyon? Yeah, and and big cottonwood actually they're they've actually I, I believe that they've actually expanding they recognize that if they if they make little cottonwood really great then there'll be more pressure on cars on the big cottonwood and canyon so anyway it's fascinating well, it is fascinating <laughs> uh, and uh, it's a great mm. it's a great tie to all the other things that we talked about um, I we have done about an hour we should probably wrap it up um, you bet. David, I do like to ask my guests at the end of the show, I, I do call this the, the messy city podcast, which is kind of a, a, an ode to, you know, neighborhoods and cities and places that are, you know, not so pristine and, you know, perfect in, in planning and development. And I'm, I'm curious if, if when I say that, if you have a place or a city or anything that comes to mind that, uh, uh, is someplace you enjoy or, or you think about. Huh. That's a messy city. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about the kind of places I like. I really, I really enjoy. I find fascinating. I find, and this is, I like the light industrial parks. Huh. I find a lot of them. I know that's that's not exactly what you're talking about, but I find them to be fascinating because they're so vibrant in terms of of. Um, entrepreneurial spirit if you look around not not all of them of course but you find them filled with all sorts of odd little businesses that are they're filled with they're sort of the replacement for you know the cheap part of town and i guess that's kind of what i'm i'm why they're so fascinating i'm thinking of one in particular the cloverdale business park which nobody even in seattle would probably know about but it's just a normal, ordinary, you know, uh, light industrial park, all automobile oriented. There's a there's a small cafe in the front, which they always have. That's so people, you know, it only runs, you know, Monday through Friday for you know lunch hours basically. But yeah. those neighborhoods are filled with. Um, I, I've I've often, I've often, I've been wondering, say, what is what's new urbanism say about in about light industrial, you know, what would be, or yeah. just, you know, how do we handle those? I think, well, you know, the, there's plenty of time to handle them because there's lots of other, you know, more immediate issues to deal with in terms of cities. But I, I find those, those, those neighborhoods really, really interesting. And yeah, I, I mean, that's, I, a, that's an interesting comment because the, the, there are places that we don't talk about very much. And uh, there is so much that happens uh, in those uh, light industrial parks all over the place. And it really is pretty fascinating. And, and there's not, you know, because you don't have the old loft buildings, which you might have right. had, you know, they're in, in the cities, in a lot of cities that they've, they've been gentrified for, right. for better or worse, mostly better. Um, 
So yeah, that would be, I'd say, in terms of, but I know what you, when you, when you described it as messy city, I, I think I knew what you meant. I said, oh, that, I know exactly what it means. That's cute. That's, that's appropriate. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, I know, I mean it, it, it fits, you know, just a place where people really live. Yeah. So, well, David, thanks so much. It's yeah. been a lot of fun to yeah, have you on me too. here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, it's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm flattered that you, that you. All right. You too. You too. Farewell, farewell the friend.